Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Dana Arnold oversees business operations, including human resources, accounting, finance, legal, strategic partnerships, customer success, and international operations at Measurable. Dana has led the company through two early stage venture funding rounds, resulting in over $20 million in cash to the business and implemented processes to support customer growth by over 270% in monthly recurring revenue, maintained employee net promoter scores in the high 70s which uh, an industry excellent benchmark is 50. And she's also taken the company through tremendous growth stages of the business. Dana is also very passionate about the solution that Measurable is bringing to the market, scaling businesses, building a strong company culture, and supporting innovation around protecting the environment. Prior to Measurable, Dana ran two departments, a 20-person data services team and a four-person customer services team at Gobi, the tech-enabled real estate consultancy. While at Gobi, she was instrumental in building strategic partnerships, directing business strategies, and improving data analysis and tools. Prior to Gobi, she supported Aramark, a food facilities and uniform services organization, as the environmental sustainability manager in corporate responsibility, where she worked across departments to increase operational efficiency and sustainability initiatives as well as corporate reporting initiatives, including CDP reporting. Dana studied architecture at the University of Michigan. Wow, Dana, very cool background, and welcome to the Second of Command podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us, um, just so that our our listener know what Measurable is, and we'll um, kind of give us a helicopter tour of that, and then we'll go back to the beginning and kind of understand where your skill set got to uh, allow you to come on as the Second in Command there. Absolutely. So Measurable is the world's most widely adopted adopted environmental, social, and governance software for owners and occupiers of real estate. Our platform supports just about 8 billion square feet of commercial real estate properties valued at around 1.5 trillion uh, US dollars across 75 countries. So we help commercial real estate companies and corporate occupiers of real estate to manage, measure, and report as well as act on their environmental, social, and governance data. Um, this data is typically used by our customers to exceed tenant expectations, comply with government regulations, um, and a new emerging trend, which is getting access to capital markets as well. Um, so from that perspective, we are really geared towards utilizing data to enable access to capital within the real estate market and doing that in very uh, gathering some of the non-financial data that's that's geared towards um, really managing long risk adjusted returns within real estate. Okay, so it's kind of kind of a complicated model, um, at least in the case. Boil it down even further for me. I was a dumb guy. I went to uh, you know I got sixty two percent in college. So give me it in layman's terms. What your what? So real estate companies, seventy five countries, trillion dollars in in real estate values. But what do they do it for? They're using it for what are they? They're taking the data and what are they doing with it? There's many different use cases for for the data that we help collect. A lot of it is around helping investors get access to data to make sure that they are making good investment decisions. So sustainability, which has kind of been a, a word and a trend um, around for a good 30, 30 or so years now, 
has really transitioned to this concept of ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Um, and sustainability being the concept around how are you playing into a circular economy? How are you playing into thinking about the sourcing, the composition, and end product of everything that you're doing? And you can apply this thought strategy to just about any type of business, any type of product, any type of strategy. Um, so our application very specifically solves the need within the built environment to collect and act on this data. So our system allows building owners, operators to input their energy, their water, their projects, their audits, their certifications, their ratings, their plans and policies around social and governance issues that range anywhere from, do you have an employee health and wellness program to what is your governing practices around how your leadership is compensated? What is your governance compensation ratio of your top uh, employees in your C-suite compared to that of your lower level workers. Wow. Um, so it, it covers such a wide range of data sets. Um, and we help to make that simple and easy. <clears throat> and from that, you're probably like, how, how and what and how do you guys go about doing this and solve yeah, I'm, this? I'm um, following with you now. This, this has been good. I'm actually now <laughs> understanding it. Can I keep going? Yeah. So we help to automate a lot of data sources as well um, within the commercial real estate market. So we've built uh, part of our application that will sync ut utility data directly from utility websites. So if you've got a username and password, kind of a little bit of a, a mint.com if you're familiar with that uh, product um, from Intuit um, to be able to sync all of that data into one place. So you can actually start looking at energy data um, all in one place from all the different uh, providers um, that you might manage across a portfolio of uh, thousands of buildings. Um, so you, we work. Are your, sorry, are your end users then able to benchmark that data against others in the industry as well? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's one of our core great. functionality um, that people come to us for. With over 35,000 properties globally that are utilizing our application, we build a peer set uh, of data. So looking at similar buildings, space types, size, age, and build a pure set to give them a benchmark score, one, one to 100, that you can actually see in real time on real data in the R system, how you're comparing to peers. That's cool. Okay. That makes a lot of sense now is they're now taking that data and saying, how are they doing versus the others versus just what buildings do they own? Right. Well, uh -huh. how are they doing managing them and running them? And, and okay, that's really cool. All right. So you've been with the company for over two years now. Give us some uh, perspective as the scope of the company as well at Measurable. Yeah. So we've got uh, two, uh, well, actually three main offices now. We, we keep growing very quickly. We're headquartered here in San Diego. Um, we've got about 60 people uh, total with about 75% of them located in our San Diego office. We have a small office in New York um, and then we have an office in London. So we've got a global team. Um, one of the projects that I, I worked on last year was, was setting up the, the UK business, which was a whole fun project uh, going through that. Um, and we've really grown um, from a people, not that you want to judge how you're growing your business based on the number of people, um, but we've typically doubled year over year um, over the last two years in terms of, of headcount. It's interesting. You just pointed to something I think is actually a really important point for anyone listening to to recognize the number of employees you have should not be a goal in terms of, of how you measure the success of your company. More people doesn't mean more success. Um, yep. I, 
client that I coached years ago called Elite SEM. And one of their goals was to get to 100 employees. I think they had 30 at the time. Um, and I said, well, why is that a goal? And he said, oh, it's because we'll be bigger. I said, well, you could be a lot bigger in terms of revenue and profitability with mm-hmm. less if you could focus on that efficiency. So they started Absolutely. to focus. Yeah. And now they're actually there. They're actually you know, about 400 employees now, but they did it in the right way. I'm going to be in San Diego next week. So I got to get your, um, your office address. Maybe I'll be able to come in and pop in and say, hi, I've got a a client of mine, Billie Jean, is marketing. Um, I'm coming in to do some filming in their studio this week. And then I've also got a um, the first COO Alliance City Forum is launching in San Diego. So I'm there to meet with our chair and some of the members next week. Well, we will definitely have to connect. That's awesome. Yeah. So tell us about your your background then. What, what kind of um, things did you see in Measurable that, that attracted you to come in as their chief operating officer? And what do you think they saw in you to bring you on board? Because it's a critical role. Yeah, absolutely. So when around the time when I was exploring joining Measurable, Measurable is about 20 people, uh, still very founder-led everything. So the CEO, Matt Ellis, who founded the company back in 2013, um, this was around about 2017 when I joined the company. He was still doing everything from running payroll to strategically leading founder-led sales to managing customer success to leading the product team. You name it, he was, he was the only business operator within the organization. We were primarily software developers, um, a few customer success, two sales guys, one marketing person. So it was very crucial state of the business. Um, he had just closed kind of a second seed round um, to really fund the next growth stage of the business. So when I started chatting with Matt, um, it was very, very clear that he needed a lot of administrative help in growing and scaling the business. Um, what really attracted to, to honestly measurable to me in the beginning is I, I was working for a quasi competitor, um, Gobi out of, out of Chicago, um, and kind of saw his approach to solving similar challenges in the commercial real estate market around utilizing technology to enable scale and growth in this space. Um, and so when I had the opportunity to, to explore some new career options, um, really I thought, wow, I really want to work for that guy, Matt. I think he's solving these things in new and innovative ways um, that typically sustainability was led by consultants or tech-enabled consultants that use a lot of people to solve challenges that technology really can solve. Mm. So that really attracted me to Measurable and and to Matt personally. Um, I reached out to him and said, hey, I like what you're doing. (laughs) Can we somehow work together? Whatever you need, I'll do it. (laughs) Um, And so it kind of started some really interesting conversations in those early moments um, of really understanding, you know, the, the approach of utilizing technology to solve global challenges around climate change in a way. Buildings consume over 40% of energy. We spend over 90% of our time indoors and commercial real estate's the fifth largest asset class. So the opportunity for huge impactful change around how we handle and prevent climate change is, is really in this core set uh, um, of challenges and it requires a global solution to really help solve these challenges and these problems. Um, consultants in Excel are not going to solve these problems in and of themselves. Utilizing a technology so consultants can actually 
solve the impactful change that they need to and removing the data management and the data architecture and some of those insights, um, centralizing that into a centralized software platform. And of course, uh, you can SaaS that. <laughs> when you have a software platform, you can really turn it into a subscription model that scales and grows with customers over time. And you guys are a SaaS model then or a subscription-based business? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah. So t about with you and Matt then. So Matt's CEO, you're COO. How did you divide and conquer in terms of your roles and responsibilities? And how has that evolved over your two plus years with the company? Yeah, definitely has evolved. Day one, I think it was it was one of those mission critical moments where Matt was like, I need to focus on strategic stuff and I need to get a lot of these administrative things off my plate. So that was really day one of our, okay, what are the, the, the tactical things that needs to get done so he can focus on a lot of the strategic things within the business. So it was, um, you know, one of those moments too where I had not been in a chief operating officer role. Um, I had experience in running a 20 person and data team that had a fairly large budget. I was responsible for all the hiring and managing of the budget and spending of the cash to deliver on the services. And, you know, in talking with Matt, I was like, you know what, whatever you need in the business, I, I'm here, I will do it. Whatever it takes to work with you, I'm here. So when talking with him, we didn't really ever discuss necessarily the role or the title or anything of that. Um, and I remember getting the job offer from him and reading being like, chief operating officer. What? 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 <laughs> and having that moment of like, okay, well, what, what does this mean? And I actually literally remember going and Googling, what does a chief operating officer do? That's awesome. And <laughs> it was that moment of really learning that this role is so dynamic and different depending on the industry, depending on the business's needs, depending on the people involved. And I'm, you know, coming into measurable from a very much of a subject matter background expertise of, you know, working in the commercial real estate space, working with sustainability in the built environment, you know, from graduating college with uh, the degree in architecture where I thought I was me designing and building buildings. Mm -hmm. Now I'm building software to help make buildings better. It was those, those moments of trying to figure out, okay, well, how, how can I be very successful coming into this role and supporting a young growth organization um, in those early days? Um, and really the main tactics in those early days were taking over a lot of the administrative functions of the business that needed yeah. to get done. You need to run payroll. <laughs> you know, <laughs> some of those not, not sexy things, but they're, they're things that need to get done. Um, and really how that role has transformed over time, you know, really was looking at what the next stage of the company was that we needed to uh, fund for that next stage. So that first good six months into the role was working on our Series A funding round um, so that we could really move, move and accelerate the business forward. Um, so that was a fun project of really learning that whole world of venture capital and, and raising money. And that was a new fun experience for me. And now I've gone through the whole process twice now. Mm -hmm. And the Series A was um, really designed to raise cash to build in a leadership team. At that right. point in time in the business, it was Matt, it was myself, and Lance, who's our CTO. Um, he handled all of the software, the development work, managing the development team, which was our largest team at that time. But we didn't have a head of sales no head of marketing, no head of customer success. 
Um, so those were some of the crucial roles that we needed to bring in, as well as some additional administrative um, members of the, the team to really help accelerate growth, including our now CFO, Nicole, uh, and our uh, head of HR, Jessica. Those were some of the key things that really transformed my role into being uh, kind of getting back into the strategic side of operations of the business. So you've been you've been in since the very early days. You've clearly had to then work on your skills as well as the company's evolved. You've had to evolve as a leader. So what what have you been working on to grow your skill set? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's something that I've actually been thinking quite a bot, quite a bit about lately. Um, of the balance between tactical things that need to get done in the business and what are those strategic things that I can do to support the growth of the business. And, and now that we, I've got a team of, of people that are supporting the administrative functions of, of the business, looking at how from a business operation standpoint, are we strategically enabling growth within the organization? I think it's very easy in this role to get bogged down by the tactical things that come up on a day-to-day basis, but being very, coaching myself to be very diligent around, is this a strategic priority in the business? Will this enable growth with our people, with our product, with our customers, with our investors? And if it doesn't fit into that model, maybe it's something we shouldn't be doing, Um, even though it might be something people might expect that someone in HR or someone in business operations would be doing these things. Um, really guiding ourselves from a strategic perspective and aligning with business growth opportunities. Hey, we go back and talk to us about the, the your two Series A and Series B rounds and, and what you guys really learned or what you learned from that experience. Because most companies will never actually go out and raise money. The ones who do it successfully often never get to the second round. And you've done completed two rounds now. What do you think you learned from the first round? And then what was different doing a Series B? And and how have you third and then third is how have we had to evolve as a company, um, you know, since raising the money? Oh yeah, absolutely. So when we were going out raising the Series A, we were looking for raising cash somewhere in the range of five to ten million when we were going out and, and starting to talk to our investors. Matt had done a really good job in the early seed rounds of getting a lot of variety of different types of seed investors that may be putting. S- small chunks of money on the table and really diversifying those early stage seed rounds um, and finding investors that understood that we were building something that didn't exist before. There's not true competitors in the sense of um, building software technology to really scale and take, um, take into account a global platform around ESG data. So it became an art of finding people who believed in the mission that ESG data is important and that they were willing to work with us to build something that is big and great. So really the series A is about kind of selling that vision and putting together rough plans for how you're going to execute on that vision. Um, Knowing that at that stage in the company, building a pro forma is, is, is a very big challenge and and understanding what those mechanics that will go into executing those things. And we were very clear and open and honest with our series A of we needed a management team to help to execute and prep the the organization for growth. At that point in time, we still had, um, you know, we had been able to 
get some very big companies um, signing up and utilizing our platform. We had really good early um, market adoption within the commercial real estate sector in the States. We knew that there was opportunities in Europe, potentially in Asia, that we could get in the early stages. There didn't appear to be any competitors around the technology space in those zones. So that was kind of our first Series A goal was we need people that can focus on a lot of these strategic elements of building out the business. And we know that we need to focus on geographical expansion in those early stages. So our Series A was exactly what we needed to get those things done. Mm -hmm. um, we were able to get almost a full management team hired within about three months of closing the Series A. Wow. And we immediately established our UK entity to start building out our team in Europe. Um, we were able to accomplish that pretty quickly, which um, I know isn't always easy hiring, especially leaders coming into the business from outside um, and kind of those early stages of growth. Um, so from, from there, 2018 was really a key moment in time for us to understand what's next. Um, and from there, we had some really great opportunities to not only grow the business in terms of revenue, grow the in terms of headcount, not that that's a goal, but you need strategic people in place to think about certain things that are definitely sure. uh, needed. We had some really interesting opportunities when it came to um, strategic partnerships, which really led us to understand that if we were going to really execute on some of these strategic partners, partnerships and integrations with organizations globally, we needed to really accelerate our ability to build software. So we, mm. while our revenues maybe weren't dictating the Series B round, we knew that we needed to do something and something quick to make sure that we could execute on, on some key objectives of the business, which is further geographical expansion, building out technology to really build an integrated platform. And thirdly, understanding how do we start monetizing on the data that we have within the application. Oh, you can wow. imagine we have a lot of data. Yeah. And one key thing that we realized was not only do the direct users of our application need this data to report to their customers, their investors, regulatory regimes that were requiring disclosure of energy, water, waste data, but that they needed help facilitating that data exchange process with those different stakeholders. And those different stakeholders are looking for aggregated anonymized data that they can use to build indices um, from the capital markets perspective. Mm. And from those early conversations, we, we really understood that there was a really big opportunity here outside of what maybe we originally set out to, to build the software for. Um, and, during those conversations of, you know, should we raise money for the Series B? We don't, we don't necessarily need it right now, but you should always raise money when you don't need it. There's some strategic opportunities that we really could accelerate if we raise cash now, even though we don't 100% need it today, but we might need it in a couple months down the road. So I'm talking with our investors at the time, as well as looking at those strategic opportunities, it became very, very clear that we should raise now. Um, right. And it's all about timing. Raise money when you don't need it. Um, but very strategically, don't take more than what you need um, is definitely some stuff that we've learned. And building a good mix of investors in your organization from a mix of uh, st 
strategics, venture capitalists, um, getting a good mix of those investors. So in this round, we had some opportunity to work with uh, Constellation Energy and SMP um, as a part of that second round from a strategic perspective, where both of those organizations saw the value in the product as well as the data for how those can impact their businesses. And that's really what drove uh, the Series B round was working with those strategic investors and how we can start commercializing our product with new customers and new ways. That's interesting. Now, are, and are any of those, um, I should probably won't even ask this question. I was going to ask related to acquisitions, but I'll stay away from that. So how, <laughs> how did you know, um, something that, that I, I heard you saying, which was that, you know, the opportunity started to be different than what we kind of visualized or visualized in the earlier stages of the business. Did you, I hate to use the term pivot, but did, did you kind of pivot or turn your attention towards some of those opportunities instead of trying to market what you were building? Did you just say yes to those opportunities that fell into that? Is that what happened? Yeah, I definitely wouldn't call it a pivot, but it's, it's always something that we, we knew there was value in the data that we're collecting beyond what our initial use case was, which was commercial real estate organizations saying, we need to report on this data. We need a mechanism to gather the data, manage the data and report it out to reporting regimes such as Carbon Disclosure Project or GRES, the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. And the reason why our customers were needing to report on those things was because there was investor demand for that data. And at the time, these reporting regimes were the way in which you communicated that information directly to investors. I think what we've seen is a shift, and, and I see this in the sustainability market, and it could be a broader theme that's existing in the market, of looking at how do you take these moments in time that might be an audit, a certification, a survey from data, and how does that actually transition into real-time reporting that is more relevant to whoever is looking at that information. And I'll use an example. So are you familiar with um, LEED certifications of buildings yeah, through the U.S. Sure. Green Building Council? Yeah. It's logos you might see on big office towers um, throughout New York, Chicago, L.A. Um, that process um, is very time intensive. There's a lot of data gathering that goes into that. And you get, you go through an entire approval process, you go through a certification, you get a nice plaque, you put it on your building. And that is how a lot of people have been communicating how green is their building. Right. As if it's a binary, are you green or not green? Yeah, what yeah. we're really seeing is that sustainability and how environmentally friendly you are or however socially impacted your business is, it's a spectrum. And so how can we transition in a way the use of this data instead of it being a binary thing of it's good or it's bad or it's green or not green into, well, how are you relative to peers and how are, how, where and how do you fit in the spectrum and what data points on that spectrum are material to you um, okay. or to your um, uh, investors, customers, regulatory regimes. And, and that's really the shift that we, we really saw in the market. So if, if you were sitting at a, a COO Alliance event, you're sitting around with a bunch of other second in commands and um, they're turning to you as kind of the environmental or environmentally friendly kind of expert in the commercial real estate space. What three tips would you give them to take back to their 
you know, 50 to 500 person companies, what would you tell them to do that maybe are the kind of the top three from the data yeah. polling or the clients that you're seeing? What, what, what should they do or what could they do that's easy? Yeah, I think the one question is, do you know what your energy spend and energy impact is? No. Today. And if the answer is no, you should probably measure it. And okay. you should measure what matters. Um, our software also is a freemium model. So anyone can go in, log in to measurable.com, create an account and start loading in data to get, uh, you know, actual insights on, on what you're doing. So we try to make it very, very easy um, and really think that sustainability is something that everyone should have access to. Um, definitely one is, do you know what, do you know what your impact is and what are some of the efficiency units that you might do? So if you're uh, a consumer based product company, do you know your energy use per unit of output that you have within your organization. Um, if you're more of a software company, you might be looking at what is your energy per employee that you're utilizing um, to understand efficiencies. Um, and I would say the, the second thing to look at, um, which might seem kind of maybe tied a little bit into the COO role, but also kind of crosses a line into ESG strategies that you can implement, um, are your employees, are you measuring your net promoter score with your employees? Are they liking your culture? Um, do they, are they feeling contributed? Are they feeling um, good? Because happy employees typically lead to a lot better outcomes. And I think maybe some companies don't necessarily see how that actually plays into ESG strategy which ESG is a very, very wide net of a lot of non-financial data that you can be collecting. Um, but understanding how happy your customers are, how happy your employees are from a culture perspective, from a product perspective, are extremely important to things that you should be measuring. Um, and our application helps uh, provide that information um, to reporting framework and regimes within, within uh, the application. Why would that be that the, and, and by the way, we'll link to um, net promoter score in the notes so that people, if they're not familiar with what an NPS is or net promoter score, we'll link to that. But basically it's, it's, you, you do a poll of your employees or your customers and you ask that one question on a scale of one to 10, how enthusiastically would you recommend this as a place to work or how enthusiastic would you recommend our service? You take the percentage of people that give you nines and tens, those are your promoters. You subtract the percentage of people that give you a one through six, those are your detractors. And you end up with a result of somewhere between negative 100% and positive 100%. 50% is considered to be world-class. You guys are in the high 70s. Why do you think that is that you're in the high 70s? And how does a high employee net promoter score translate to um, you know, sustainability? I'm curious. Yeah, no, th those are some great questions. So I think some of the elements that go into getting very high scores, and we just completed another round. We're actually at 84 now, um, which it's always like kind of those moments of growth in your company. You're like, okay, so we're getting better as we're growing. These are some good things, but I'm always a skeptic too. That says, okay, well, what can we do, be doing better? No, um, and I'm not a skeptic so much as I'm just curious. How does it <laughs> yeah, because I believe yeah. in it. I'm just curious what it does. Yeah. So about a year ago after our series B or sorry, after our series A um, and we hired in HR, one of the main things that I've seen at, at similar companies is when you start hitting those major growth stages of adding a lot of people, new processes and policies, it kind of can start weighing down on the business. It becomes a very culturally draining, exhausting environment, especially for the employees that have 
been around from those early stages, it becomes a very difficult transition from, I can just kind of do whatever I want and I've got my company card and no one really asks questions um, to, okay, we, now we have a policy for how reimbursements get made. Um, those are some really difficult transitions. So we set out to build out a culture committee within the organization that was not um, a top down, but a bottom up strategy oh, around okay. understanding what are our values. And, and this is kind of a, an ongoing theme that we're always talking about, about how do we continue to focus on our culture. In early stage companies, culture is typically set by the relationships built between those founding members of the company and those early employees. And then you get to these injection points in your company where you have to become more focused and um, intentional with culture growth. Mm. It no longer is just, you know, anyone can come to the CEO and ask questions and get direction there's middle management and there's process for how those things need to happen and how c communication and constant collaboration are very key important things. And from that, we instilled the culture committee. That's a rotating group of people throughout the company that want to be involved in, in our company culture that care about it. And it. we instilled in them uh, to define our cultural values that they've seen us that kind of organically grew across them the business. And from there, we distilled out what those key things are, transparency, harmony, influence, um, and integrity. And those are key things that we talk about on a very regular basis. And if we call each other out like, hey, you're not being very transparent. Hey, no, that's not how we do things. We do things with top integrity. And we call each other out on those things that maybe we're not doing that are fitting in with our culture. And we try to be very transparent. Um, with our financials, with the company strategy. We meet on a monthly basis with the entire company to talk about those things and provide those feedback mechanisms. And so I think those are some of the strategies that we've used to really uh, have seen an increase in our Not Promoter score over the last year, even though we've gone through a lot of rattling changes of pricing models, new leadership, new structures, new ways of thinking about how we develop our product and service our customers. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's totally making sense now. Connecting the dots. How did you, how did you as a company through this high growth, through the two rounds of funding, how did you um, keep the company focused? How did you, you know, as a company and people say no and learn to say no? <laughs> Saying no is a very difficult, but also very easy thing to do. Um, if you're very strategic with how you, know, you do it. Um, that, that's a, that's kind of a tough one. So you know, being a small company, you know, we, we use Slack as our communication channel. And if you are an organization out there that have not um, thought about how you get out of email for internal communication, uh, you need to use Slack. Um, that's hands down what you need to be able to do. Um, within that, we are always constantly communicating with each other um, throughout those stages of growth of, you know, we've been through a big office move. We completed that about two months ago and we're kind of in some temporary space. The, the full office will be ready to be moved into again in about another month, um, which was a very stressful project that um, myself and our office manager, Gabri, were leading. Um, but one thing that we, we were constantly doing is just providing updates consistently, clearly to the entire company about the progress that we're going through with all these major changes. And I think that's a key a key element to not having decisions ever appear to be 
done in the dark, um, which I think can be the tendency sometimes when there's a lot of things going on. It's like, well, we don't want to flood people with communication. Um, I argue that you should flood people with communication, but done in an organized, clear way mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. make sure that people feel connected to the strategies of the company, those big moments of change within the company, to those key hires that will help to accelerate, accelerate growth within the organization as well. That's cool. Yeah, you guys are getting the balance right figured out. All right, one final question. If you were to give the 21-year-old Dana some advice when you were starting out in your career, stuff that you know for sure to be true to <laughs> then what would you tell yourself back then now yeah back when I was 21 I was still on the mindset that I was going to be an architect Mm. um, building and designing buildings and had no idea that there was opportunities to lead a business and to uh, be in the software space and I I probably would tell myself to continue to embrace opportunities as they come your way and not be fearful of them, but embrace them. And each step of the way, you will learn amazing things that will help to make you stronger and better. And if you ever feel comfortable, you need to do something. You need to continuously challenge yourself to learn new things, to um, be constantly learning. And I think that is something that I think I was very fearful of change in those early stages of my career. And I really wish I ran with open arms to those changes and those fears that may be um, prevented me in those early in those early steps of the career to to really thrive. Fear control you. That's awesome. I love that. I love that you actually also approached Matt in the early days and said, "Look, like I just kind of want in. I'll do whatever needs to be done." Right? You saw the opportunity. You kind of trusted your gut that something felt right about it, and it was just like, "Just let me in the door." Yeah. Yeah. As, as what I say to a lot of people, be bold, ask for what you want, reach out to the people you want to work with and connect with, and you'll be surprised with where those paths will take you. That's awesome. Dana Arnold, the Chief Operating Officer for Measurable. Thank you very much for sharing with us today on the Second in Command podcast. Thank you, Cameron. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.